0: How do you measure yourself with other golfers? By height. It's a very, very special
1: honor. I'm Paula Creamer, and you're listening. Well,
2: we're waiting. Hi, this is Martin Cove, a.k.a. John Creese from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to Golf Talk Live.
1: Let the word go out <laughs> from here across the land. Let Danny Noonan uh, approve. Hey, this is Shooter McGavin. You're listening to the 19th Hole Podcast. And welcome to another episode of Golf Talk Live's 19th Hole Podcast. I am Alan DePue, and as always, I am joined by an illustrious panel. And it's actually even grown. I got a I got a whole sheet of roll call here, guys. I got Brendan Elliot of Little Linksters, Bobby Baldassari, our longtime friend of Reimagine Golf, Andy Hydorn of Sports Box, and joining us as a special guest, Dr. Raymond Pryor, author of Golf Beneath the Surface. And you thought I'd forgotten him, but no. Christian DeZamis, the prettiest (laughs) podcaster in golf. Gentlemen, look at us. We've got got six six people across the screen tonight. Everybody
2: everybody gets three words tonight.
1: That's that's about the that's about the average. (laughs) That's about how it's gonna work out, Andy. Choose them wisely. (laughs) Look like the brady bunch.
3: Yeah. yeah, Alan, you can be like the pace of play for on the golf course with a six of (laughs) them.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Hey guys, here's, what's on the agenda. We're going to chat, obviously PNC. We written, we've asked Raymond to join us on the panel because his book, great stuff. Uh, we're all about game improvement. We love to work those segments in because I need help with my golf game. And, uh, the first cracks in the armor of live. Have we begun to see them, but I'm going to go back to the beginning PNC. Thoughts. Raymond, jump in because you know when he, you start to see an Andy lean into the screen. <laughs> it's all it's it's on. Game over. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there are a lot of cooks in this kitchen, so I will add some ingredients very spare as we go along. I, we appreciate that. So anybody have any takeaway? I literally I told you I was gonna watch it all.
0: Did
1: anybody you watch it comments?
0: all? I did watch it all. Every single shot. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> I didn't um, watch as much as I probably should have. But um, I did watch, obviously, thanks to social media, basically all of Tiger and Charlie's shots. Um, I, I mean, I knew that they were, you know, Charlie was nursing an injury. It's just, it kind of creeped me out how similar he is to his dad with a lot <laughs> of things that he was doing. You said it um, not me. By just his reaction to hitting a, a tee shot and getting hurt right after that, it was just quite scary in some of the words that he says in his uh post round interview um but i mean it's it's still a treat to watch charlie being only what is he 13 um it's still a treat to watch him play the kid can still get after the ball um he's got a very bright future in golf um you know obviously i know they didn't get it done i mean they came and tied for eighth but still it was it was still it was still a treat to watch him
2: all right andy what do you got no, I'm, I'm with Christian. It, it was awesome. I think a couple of things really stuck out to me. Um, first of all, there's some great players in that thing. To shoot those scores that they do, yeah. that's a, a two-man scramble. I mean, two-man scramble is not easy to shoot in the 50s and or even the low 60s. It's, just a, it's pretty incredible that they were able to do what they did. Um, <clears throat> I think it was pretty clear tiger had some game this weekend
4: yeah saturday so, especially
2: wow yeah. i mean he he was getting almost a 180 ball speed yeah you know a year ago he was in the low 160s yeah so that's that's pretty incredible um and my favorite person of the whole week is will mcgee
4: yep yep by far
1: <laughs> yes you stole, yep. you stole my three words for tonight
2: what a what a <laughs> sweet kid I mean, and yeah, I, I, that's why I love that event.
1: So Raymond, from a, we're going to, we're going to tap into your expertise from a psychological aspect of it. I mean, it's a fun atmosphere, but I mean, did you see anybody playing outside their norm?
5: I don't know about outside their norm. I think probably a lot of the family members played a little bit outside their norm. Mm -hmm. Um, You you take somebody who's not in that environment (laughs) from which, like the professional players are, or some of those players have lived most of their life. You take like a Lee Trevino; he's played most of his life playing professional golf,
1: right?
5: Um, and you throw them into that setting, like that's a nervous experience for sure. Um, and the great news is it's a family atmosphere type of thing, so there's a lot of freedom for people to hit shots, um, and try shots without too much punishment, especially. especially in- that. Um. But that doesn't mean it's not a pressure-filled uh, experience. I mean, those players are trying to win.
1: That is for yeah. sure. Cool to see that. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. There is definitely the competitive nature is is still there.
5: Yeah, for sure. A couple of things that stood out to me were one, how many people were limping around because they were. <laughs> uh, well, it the is the BM Champions Bay. Tour. That's right. The second was Tiger from forty to eighty yards incredible Some incredible shots um just a ton of club head speed but like a wide open like off the of pine straw off of tight lies out of the rough like he played some really as much as people are talking about his ball speed the shots he's been hitting kind of um, half wedges have been really impressive and then also just for the second week in a row nelly corda playing um outside of the comfort zone of the lpj not that the lpj is super comfortable but she's playing with professional men um and playing very well which is super impressive because the pressure for women when you do that is uh understated for sure
1: yeah and, and let, before i jump to bobby real quick on that point i mean she, let's face it she's still a young lady and yeah. she's she's standing along the sides i mean we all saw the pictures of her last year with with tiger sheepishly wanting to go up to him and even talk to him <laughs> so yeah i great great point um bobby to Raymond's point, though, on, you know, the, the amateurs or the uh, the family members, did you find it funny? Because I found a humorous Peter Jacobson at one point during one of his line. I can't remember which player it was. I think it was Spieth's father ran it up through the bunker on 18, and he said something right. about he planned to do it that way. Do, do any of them really plan to do it that way, Bobby?
3: You're a trained, trained <laughs> teacher. Do they plan <laughs> to do it that way? No, yeah, but they always say, you know, pretend you meant to do that. Yeah, I meant to meant to push the twenty yards right into and we're back right over water, water pin placement. Uh, I was rooting for the Thomases. I know Mike, I've uh, known him for a long, long time. Uh, but here's a guy he played exceptional.
5: People. Yeah,
3: he's a PGA member. To Raymond's uh, comment, but he's not used to being inside the ropes as much as he's around Justin. He's teaching them. He's around those tour players. It's different when you're standing over the ball. But I was, you know, I was trying to think, you know, what's the draw? of this PNC event, like why do people tune in? And to me, it goes back to the core of what golf's about, family, friends, relationships, like that is such a powerful draw to me. It's, you know, if it was Tiger and Justin and the two men, they just had that a week ago in the Bahamas or whatever. It's different, I mean, when you bring in the families, that I I really hope, I know the criteria to play, you gotta win a major of players, but I would love to see the field a little bit bigger I'd love to see more of the dynamics with the families there. Um, I'd like to start my own PNC event down here in the Treasure Coast. To be honest with you,
1: Brendan, you, as the as the teacher of juniors, I mean, to Andy's comment, how about how, Will stole the show? But it seems yep. like there's a there's it seems like there's another it, three years ago it was it was Charlie, then it was Stenson's boy, I, or I, I can't remember his name. I apologize. And then this year it was Will. It's like there's it's like every. Every year, there's another fresh-faced junior that's popping on the scene that
4: is schooled is schooled in the game, and they and they all steal the show. It was Carl, Carl Stenson last year that kind that's of the, yep. the event they have the night before. He kind of we were told because we don't get the we're not privy to that, but he stole the show with some of his comments. And I I, I like that aspect that Bobby said. I'm going to go back to what he said because one of the new websites I'm writing for, I put an article out what a fitting way to end the year that's been such a crazy year with everything that's been going on to get back to the root of what golf's all about, which is family and friends. Um, and then from the junior standpoint, in all fairness to Charlie and and some of these other kids, they're actually like Charlie in particular, he's not the best junior out there, but when you see a kid like him, that's as good as he is under that pressure it really puts a spotlight for me as a junior guy of how good junior players are and how capable they are of going out there. I'm I'm interested to see uh, what Raymond has to say about this, where, you know, it's an uncomfortable situation, as you mentioned, but kids, not all, but some kids are able to kind of go into the lion's den and have no fear, especially the younger I think they are. Um, will probably had some butterflies, but he just didn't like he he looked like he didn't yeah. really it didn't phase him at all. It was incredible
5: yeah. Well to that degree, you know your larger conversation, you're talking about how good juniors are. The amount and the sheer number of we might call them elite junior golfers right now in golf kids who are shooting in the 60s pretty regularly and from back tees at their not so easy golf course clubs is pretty outstanding. You know, being an evolution in golf now where um, science is propelling the game a lot. We're starting to understand a lot of what the sources are for how to club speed, ground force, et cetera. And kids are learning it more systematically earlier. Uh, And then when you put them in environments where they can explore that without um, as much adult intervention as possible, they're going to start to figure some things out. And we're going to get, I mean, like you said, Charlie Woods is an exceptional junior golfer he's not a top tier junior yep. golfer, not, not yet anyways. Hmm. Um, but to that degree, science is teaching us how we can start to train children younger and younger to be able to handle pressure. And I work with a ton of kids in their teens. And if you can start that with them early, where that starts to become their default setting, it's not that they don't have fear or they don't fear pressure. They learned how to manage it much more effectively than just throwing them into the lion's den when they're 20 or 25 and eventually make it on tour. Mm-hmm. And if you look at both tours, the LPJ and the PJ tour, the age of first time winners has dropped exponentially in the last 10 years. And it's because you have better golfers who are also coming up with more robust psychological frameworks that are willing to sit in the discomfort of what it means to try to win a golf tournament.
1: Yeah. So we're going to, th- <laughs> we're going to throw it over to our resident kid in a second to answer that. But um, <laughs> no, let's do that first. Andy, on deck for just overall about the competition christian to raymond's point i mean let's face it you're you're not that far removed from junior golf compared to us have you seen an evolution in the players
0: yeah absolutely i mean you can just look at it from a i'm gonna say from a even a corn fairy standpoint too with how good the talent is on on the corn fairy level you know i i I know a guy who's who's busted his ass on tour for the corn fairy tour for years he was shooting 12, 15 under par, and he wasn't even close to winning a tournament. Um, even going back to, you know, my junior golf days. I well, mean,
1: you tee have... it so up in the Monday qualifiers on the corn fair. If you don't shoot 63 or 64, Absolutely. you're not getting into the playoff.
0: Absolutely. I'll never forget. I, I when, you know, it just goes to show you that, like, I, I tried to qualify for the U.S. Open at Oak Hill a couple of years back. I shot 75 from the tips. It was 30 mile an hour winds, high, high, rough, all the above. I got wiped by 10. <laughs> Straps out of the lead, right? I thought I played some of the best round of golf I could have, some of the best ball striking I had, and I got literally I missed a cup by ten shots because, and I, and I think a what nineteen year old kid just came to, in and just beat me. You know, I mean it just goes to show you the talent and, and of golf in general. I remember playing in college, and I mean there was just so much talent and potential, and I wasn't at a big school. I was at Niagara University, um, still, but even at those mid major schools the talent was unbelievable. You know, you, you had to break basically 75 every single event that you went out and played in order to have a spot on the team. And I'm sure it's even lower now, especially if you want to go to a power five school to even play golf.
1: Well, Andy, Andy, to your, your point, you brought up JD, you know, uh, John jr. Is not on the roster. and He's on the roster. He's not in the playing five at Arkansas. Right. And, and again, uh, you know, and I, and I right. didn't think they played that well this weekend. Obviously, John Senior was injured, but I mean, yeah. he was part of the hobbling group. But Raymond brought it
2: up too about about Charlie. You know, we watch Charlie swing swing golf club, and we're all drooling. And you know, Charlie's not head and shoulders the best junior player in in his area. I mean, he's he's good, but you know, there's just so much of that out there. And um, I don't know if you guys saw. It. Uh, club pro guy wrote a letter of congratulations to vj and his son cass it's pretty good if you haven't seen it look it up um but no the one i
1: saw the club pro guy wrote that peter that peter's name was misspelled peter accorda <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no <Nope. laughs> but- what did what did club pro guy say andy so sure. well, it
2: was it was pretty funny just you know basically saying that you know you guys have been playing in this tournament for like 12 years and you know <laughs> you finally won and but you know Cass Singh, he played great golf yeah he hit he had some really good shots and again it's it just it takes a lot to and, and especially for for those non-professionals <laughs> who are out there doing this under the spotlight i mean that's that's impressive stuff i
5: will say too if you're <laughs> That it's it's not totally surprising when you see the family members of some very successful pro golfers uh, step in because that being composed under pressure is being modeled to them every day of their life, and so yeah, there's oh point. The, pressure, when the pressure turns up if you can self-regulate a little bit then you're able to execute more freely. So it's not a total surprise, but it certainly doesn't mean there's not pressure involved. But I mean, Cass has been seeing his dad play at an elite level and practice like a maniac for (laughs) his entire life. It's not surprising that Cass hits that shot into 18 yesterday and you go, oh, wow, what a shot. Like he's seen his dad do that a bazillion times and not just make a good swing, but also go, hey, get composed before you actually hit this shot rather than just try to rush through it and get it done with as fast as possible.
1: Great, great, great point. Bobby, is our resident golf historian on here, Uh, Gary Player standing on the practice range with Lee Trevino talking about wedges. Does that ever get old?
3: No, not to me. No, I've seen him do that when I've been around Gary. Those guys just, you know, they're from a different era. They just, I mean, what he did, Gary went up to the little kid that um, wanted Gary to sign his flag. And he started giving, asking him questions. You play golf? How well do you play? Do these two things? Get the right elbow in. Look at the one dimple when you putt. I mean, the the guys just nonstop looking to help, looking to talk, looking to just keep learning. Those guys keep learning about the game. And you know, you know, it's a cliche. It's going to keep you young, but it's going to keep you playing while out there. And I mean, to see Trevino hit some of the shots he hit, that was so cool. Um, But I did want to ask Raymond this one. You know, it, talk about cliches, but um, the phrase "skeletons in the closet." When you're a young golfer, and I remember my dad was a PGA member, growing up in the game, playing, and for a lot of a lot of my junior career, it was I was at point A, I'm hitting it to point B, and I forgot about out of bounds hazards, whatever. Um, you start hitting a few wayward shots as you get older, and then you have that next shot, and you start thinking, "Oh, geez," you know, two years ago I did this and that. I mean, is, is that is there something to that thing about people that dwell too much on past negative skeletons in the closet? I mean, as a kid golfer, you don't have anything to go back on. And I've always seen kids that just react and hit it.
1: So this would be a great point where we segment to <laughs> golf beneath the surface, your book, elaborate a little bit about it, and uh, we'll answer Mr. Uh, Baldessari's question there.
5: All right. Um so skeletons in the closet is kind of a common phrase. I would just say that they're just some negative memories, you might say, or memories of past events that you would prefer not to repeat. Um, our brain, the way our brain is designed is to remember events like that. So our brain has not evolved in 15,000 years. And if you uh, forgot negative events very quickly back then, you would die also very quickly. So this idea that we're going to have a short memory is not a real thing. And so to touch on what my book is about, I'm drawing very heavily from science about what we really know about psychology so that we can use that information that is more accurate rather than just some kind of conventional wisdoms. Because what might, if you don't understand how your brain works is you might say, oh, you have some negative experiences. Just think positively or just don't think about that or just forget that. And what you're actually trying to do is work exactly in the opposite direction that your brain is designed to work and learn. And so instead, it's important to reflect on those memories, but in a way that allows you to be able to understand what happened um, rather than develop a fear of those events happening. And of course, the outcomes of our performance matter to us. The outcomes of shots matter. What that really means is, can I reflect on that memory and understand that it's a mutually exclusive event? It happened in the past. There's always a possibility that it could happen again. But if I can then ground myself and be present in a tangible way then I can still go, okay, well, how do I want to swing and make a, how do I want to play this shot right now? Not based on trying to avoid a past that has already happened or a future that hasn't happened yet. Um, So everybody has memories. There's not an athlete anywhere in any sport or performance of any kind that doesn't have heartbreak in their past. Matter of fact, if you're playing golf and you don't have heartbreak, it probably means you're not playing, um, you're not taking enough risk or you're not challenging yourself enough. Bottom line is we all have memories that are heartbreak. The key is, can I learn to coexist with them and um, observe them for what they are, which is it's a memory of the past, but doesn't have to indicate my present or my future. And I don't want to pretend that that's easy, um, but that's a much more effective strategy than trying to pretend that memory doesn't exist, that that thought didn't pop up or that you're not in the same situation or similar situation where something went awry last time.
3: So that phrase, you have to learn how to lose to win, there's merit to that? To a degree.
5: um, I've heard several interpretations of that. Clarify what your understanding of that phrase is so that I can try to. That
3: that was a pretty popular phrase. And and it goes to our discussion we've had on our Golf Talk Live before about the generational move for younger winners on the tour. But there used to be this thing, you couldn't win on tour, you, you lost in your 20s. The tour players, that the you know, best players didn't win till they were in their 30s because, quote-unquote, they had to learn how to lose before they could win, experience this and that. Yeah, I think there's
5: some truth to that. Now, where that plays out in your life uh, might depend on is how soon you start that. So, for example, if you were coaching young children, we want them to fail. We want them to fail, reflect on that failure, and build a accepting relationship with failure. And by accepting, I don't mean – I'm super satisfied with failure, or I'm resigning myself to less, or that I don't care about the results of my performance, or even that I like failure. What it means is failure is a part of taking risk to be successful. And if I can learn to fail and learn from it and understand it's part of the success process, then you don't have to fear it. And then it doesn't become a barrier. And the sooner you start that process with people, the sooner they are they're able to learn how to succeed. So essentially we can learn from our successes and failures, but failure is a far more valuable teacher than success because it will direct you as to what is a better strategy sooner, but only if you build a, an accepting relationship with failure. If you build an avoidant relationship with failure, it eventually becomes a fearful relationship with failure. And that's a recipe for anxiety while you're playing golf, which is not helpful. And it's also an anxiety for a uh, recipe for burnout.
1: So, so one of the greatest lines, I love Zig Ziglar, by the way, the old uh, one of the, he had the greatest line failures is an event. It's not a person. Correct. And, and you know what? So it would almost be like, I don't know, standing over an 80 yard wedge shot at the Houston senior am and being terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hypothetically speaking, Andy, right? <laughs> I mean,
5: not hypothetical. That's, that's a real situation that many. Oh, yeah. people... Andy, Andy, is that real? That's
0: real. Yeah,
5: (laughs) that's real. Um, And in those situations, we're far better off um, recognizing that fear and learning to coexist with it in ways that allow us to keep our the parts of our brain that can make intentional decisions online, rather than trying to pretend that fear doesn't exist. And then again, the worst thing we can do in those situations is just hit those shots as fast as possible to try to get out of the discomfort of fear, because that will disrupt your physical skills. Um, I mean, that's the basis the foundation of like the yips is I'm trying to hit this thing fast as possible to get onto the next moment where it's more comfortable than it is to play the shot and sit in the discomfort of what if this thing gets chili dipped. Um, and if you do that enough, um, you'll develop a yippy like a physical spasmy type stroke for sure. Um, so that's a, a down the road of many things, but what we're really talking about here is there's value in failure and us trying to make sure that we are successful all the time. Typically we don't get that good juice out of failure, but that doesn't mean failure is enjoyable.
1: Christian junior, junior golf, college career. Any, can you relate?
0: Oh yeah. Tremendously. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many rounds that I've had where um, you know, I, I might shoot under par. I might shoot a couple over and obviously in college you play 36 holes in a day. So Just the mental part of that, obviously, and just staying composed to what you what you do um, throughout the course of the time that you're on the on the golf course. Some of my best rounds of golf have been when I just don't even think about it. You know, I just I just I'm so in tune to what I'm doing and I'm having fun while I'm doing it. And some of the worst rounds that I've had, honestly, is thinking that like, okay, holy crap, I'm three under par through eight holes. I'm trying to now shoot in the 60s. I put the foot on the gas a little bit farther. And then just like that, a double happens. It happened to me in college. I was leading after a tournament and my coach comes running up to me and tells me that I was leading after 18 holes and I ended up coming in second place. Literally, I I was tied for second and I got so mad at him afterwards. Some words were exchanged. I, um, I almost had to be held back from my teammates because I was that ticked off at my coach because I said to him, I said, never, ever, ever again come up to me in the middle of an event and tell me that I'm leading the tournament. I don't want to know that. I didn't want to know that. I was so in my own swing all day and I, I, I ended up losing the tournament.
1: Andy, so. you think, you think he's feisty on here, Andy, you should have seen him back then. <laughs> Holy hell. Dippy. I,
0: when, you, when you get feisty and anybody on this, anybody on, our, on obviously our show or anybody who loves a game of golf is always going to have that mentality because we love the game so much and we want to win. And you know, like Raymond alluded to, if you don't, if you, when you tee it up, if you're not, if you don't have that mentality, and Tiger said it for his entire career, I want to win, period. Why, like, why else are you playing the game if you don't? I know we love it, but you obviously want to win golf tournaments as much as you can. Well, well, um, Raymond, I, I, I
1: see it and we'll, we'll take this to the, I'll take it to myself, uh, not as skilled as I used to be or our listeners that are out there. How often do you hear all the time is, oh, I started out, I shot 43, but, or 45 or whatever on the front nine, but I brought it back with 36 or 37 on the back nine. It's almost like they made that turn and it was a reset of the mind. Is is that what you're really saying?
5: Yeah, what you're talking about is um, a reflection of a person's level of acceptance. When we play a terrible front nine, we assume, well, the day's ruined anyway. And so now the situation is offering us acceptance. We basically go, well, it can't get any worse. So what happens is, The situation makes it easy for our acceptance level, meaning our willingness to experience anything that might happen in the next nine holes goes way up. To Christian's point, what he was talking about, this is why acceptance for us as human beings, if we want to thrive, is so important. When our level of acceptance for all possible scenarios and outcomes is really high, what it does is we stop multitasking with the future and the past. And when we stop multitasking with the future and the past, we're actually able to be present more often. And if you take any golfer who has a terrible front nine and you increase their level of acceptance and they are grounded in, in the present more often on the back nine, they're going to play better. And that happens for golfers of all skill levels. The opposite happens when you play an outstanding front nine. right? And go, uh-oh, if I keep this up, I will shoot this. And what happens is you start multitasking with avoidance, which is don't screw this up. Or, don't, um, or you're multitasking with protect a good score, which now means you're not really grounded in trying to actually pursue a great score. This College golfers tell me this all the time. I'll play 18 holes in the morning, play great, I see my score, and then there's a shift. And it's the situation that makes it more difficult to be accepting because what we don't want to accept is the possibility you might go out and play totally freely and you might screw it up anyway. And if you're always multitasking with avoidance, you're never really single tasking on what's required right now, which is to get the ball from where it is now to where it is that you want it to be and be grounded in that. And that is what disrupts that process.
1: So I was, I was, and I know Bobby's got a question, but Andy, I was, I was picking on your 80 yard wedge shot, but I mean, you are a student of the game, Raymond, Andy's a stick. (laughs) He's a phenomenal player. And Andy, from from your perspective, what you're hearing from Raymond, applying it to the golf course, what's your thoughts?
2: Well, I I got a chance to talk to to Raymond the other day on the phone for a little bit, and you know one of the things that that I kind of feel in in the field that he's in, there's so many different approaches to peak performance, right? To to you know the mental approach to the game and and my question really to Raymond is is you know some of that stuff seems more tangible than others, right you know like when I hear people say, well, just just have a positive attitude or just you know tell yourself you know that you're gonna succeed and tell yourself you're a great putter or whatever I mean like I tend to look at that stuff and be a little bit skeptical whereas when somebody else, is, is talking about really how the brain works, right? Like that's what gets my attention.
5: Yeah. Well, if you, the types of pithy catchphrase type stuff you're talking about, you should be very skeptical. So <laughs> I'll just, I'll just go a little bit. So the reason I wrote this book in part is because, um, the quality of psychology available to golfers historically is awful. It's really bad. Um, and a lot of the stuff that you are skeptical about is probably, and correct me if I'm off courses, is you go, okay, that sounds good on the surface. That's not what my experience is really. And when I try to apply it, it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because it's not very good psychology and it's not very tangible, one. And two, it's not rooted in how our brain actually is designed to work and how it learns. Because smothering something with positivity is like swimming upstream against the way your brain is designed to work. Um, Telling yourself you're just great, but when you've been putting like terribly for the last couple of months, there's no credibility to that whatsoever. Um, It's not good psychology. And so my hope is that my book will be able to offer something that, again, it's rooted in the science of what we know and how things actually work, rather than just these kind of conventional wisdoms that we share around. But if you are, and by the way, there are many approaches to performance psychology, but psychology like physics, there are things we know are true and things are not. And so if you're finding yourself very skeptical of some yeah. psychology being purveyed by somebody, you should start asking questions. And the questions you should start asking are how, why, and what, like you're looking for a mechanism underneath. Like how does this actually work and why does it work? Not just, oh, that sounds good because that is not good psychology. Good psychology is not trying to just make people feel better and believe in themselves. That's not how it works. Um, good psychology is trying to work with how our brain and our mind are designed so that we can start to shift things in a way that move us in the directions that we want to go. And oftentimes you go, yeah, that makes total sense. Oh, and that's probably going to be pretty difficult.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Bobby.
3: Yeah. Raymond, um, have you ever heard the uh, the old story about Ted Williams and Sam Snead discussing what's the tougher thing to do hit a golf ball or hit a baseball? And Sam Snead said, and, well, and Raymond, said, Raymond
1: well, this is why he is our historian, by the
3: yeah. way. <laughs> well, it's, it's like Boston sports too, so I'm sure we're getting into Ted. Williams yeah, game. yeah, true. The Teddy ball game, and so Ted Williams said, "Well, it's, it's, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm standing in the batter's box and 90 something mile an hour fastball to hit a home run. That's tougher." Sam Sneed said, "Well, we have to hit. We have to go find our foul balls and hit them." Yeah. So. You know, I I just sort of, quote unquote, tee that up. Al is the king of the segue, but uh, I wanted to tee that up because I was curious, do you find characteristics that are different individual sports, golf, maybe swimming to some degree uh, versus team sports? And then within a team sport, I think of a QB and a goalie in those two positions as being really almost the the key, uh, you know, obviously the key positional players, but just in general individual sport individual player versus a team play you know this the the wide receiver or something um the left fielder on a team
1: i'm going i'm going to echo that because my son andrew was a highly competitive go- ice hockey goalie i've always said is the hardest individual position in sports um having that hard rubber coming at you but uh... yeah
5: i think every sport will probably try to make their claim as to what makes their sport the most difficult or what skill within it we're talking about human psychology. We're talking about the same psychology applied to different tasks. So the same fear of failure you might have hitting a golf ball is the same fear of failure that my pop star clients tell me about when they're about to go step in front of a hundred thousand people and they've all paid a ton of money to watch them perform. Right. So the tasks are different and some tasks are harder or easier than others based on what physical skills required, what the conditions are when like, Some of the easiest skills are in the most pressure packed situations. For example, the world cup was just the other day taking a penalty kick is some of the easiest soccer. I played for the youth national team penalty kicks is the easiest skill in soccer. It's also probably the most pressure packed and difficult putting in golf is not the most complicated and athletic skill set. It is some of the most difficult thing to do because if you don't do it well, you can't score. Right? So what's, whether it's a team or whether it's individual, where you add things to the team is you're not just responsible for yourself. You're also responsible for others. And so it's not just how well you perform. It's also how well you can communicate with other people, what decisions you make that influences other people. Basketball players tell me, point guards tell me all the time, my job is harder than somebody else's, which in some ways it probably is. So, but you could also, I have individual athletes tell me mine's more difficult because I don't have somebody to bail me out if I don't play well, right? So it can, depends a lot on our subjective interpretation of it, but the bottom, all human performance creates a significant number of challenges that test our mind, our body, and our skill sets. And the best performers in the world are not leaving any of those three to chance.
1: And doctor, I echo that as the point guard here. My job is <laughs> a thousand percent harder than just oh, yeah, saying. Yeah. Brendan, as far as the juniors, let's go back to the kids. And actually what I'm also interested in is obviously we want everyone to know where you can buy, find your book, which we'll talk about in a minute. But how do we apply that? How does how does Brendan take what you're saying now to, to his juniors? I've been watching him in his, our Zoom screen here, nodding his head because he's telling he's reinforcing this to his kids all the time, but how
4: do we take it to the course? So, and and I've got two things that I wanted to throw out there. First might be part of that cliche thing that you guys had mentioned. I think Andy had mentioned it before. So for our younger kids in our group programming, and we start very young, three to four years old, it's all about having fun. And I carry that over into working with, you know, the kids that are more competitive, the teams that I work with privately, is that a cliche thing? That's my first question, the fun factor being important. And then two, the practical application, as Alan said, like my teens that I work with privately, they always want me to give them some kind of exercise that they can do so they can reinforce some of the things that we verbally talk about when it comes to this. Um, so those are my, my, my two questions for you.
5: Can you give me an example of one of the things you talk about that you would want your uh, students to apply in a tangible way
4: so well you you've kind of already talked about it and this has been a big topic for uh, for the kids that are now in high school and they're playing on their high school teams is the the idea there's two things not being able to carry over great practice sessions onto the golf course and then two is what we've what you've already alluded to about the good front nine or the good first couple holes and then it falling apart. So that's, that's really the conversations we've been having a lot with our high school players is maintaining.
5: So the consistency of performance under changing conditions is largely a component of how stable your confidence is. So to your skeptical degree here, if you're trying to build confidence based on certainty, based on comfort, based on ease of functioning, or based on comparison to other people, it is by definition going to be unstable because those things are not always available to us. Stable confidence is built on knowing how to be accepting, which is difficult for us as human beings because often our default setting to the things we don't like is to be resistant and avoidant to do them. And we have to wrap our head around the idea that the less I resist this, the more likely I am to pursue the things that I want because I create space to do that. So what that looks like is being very aware of and admitting that there are many outcomes available or experiences that I won't like, including if I start off great, that the back nine might not live up to the front nine. The second part, and with everybody who's trying to thrive and be better at something, and by the way, enjoy it more, so I'll tie this to fun when we in a second here is we have to learn to be present more often and in a tangible way. And what that means is when your mind is not where you want it to be, stop trying to control it with your mind and go to your body. So we're not breathing, for example, to try to relax, to be more comfortable, to be more confident, to whatever. When we're connecting with our breath and breathing, we're actually trying to connect to the physical sensation that tells you you're breathing. And what if I if I am focused on the physical sensation right now of breathing in this moment, I, by definition, psychologically have to be present. And when we are psychologically present, we're not trying to be more comfortable, more confident, all these things that aren't technically required. And that allows us to actually be focused on the task at hand when it's required without multitasking. So if we're trying to be more tangible, it's be a big wide willingness to experience all that your performance might present to you. And two, can I be in the moment that I'm in when I'm actually in it more often? which doesn't mean you won't think about the future or the past or other things at times. But if I know how to anchor physically and tangibly to being present, two things happen. One, I perform better, which is great. And we know for sure that being off time and multitasking disrupts physical skills. That's not in dispute. The second thing that you're alluding to is any experience we have, our brain enjoys more when we are present. There are a bazillion studies that show you could take an undesirable task be present in it, and we will enjoy it more than a desirable task that we are distracted within. And so being fun, what basically, if we're really talking about how our brain works, when we are present with an activity, void of distraction, or allowing ourselves to be grounded in it more often, our brain starts to pair our dopaminergic system to that thing. This is the danger of being so uh, outcome-oriented. Outcomes matter. They are important. Having goals is important. When they are the end-all, be-all for us, what happens is all of our dopamine stores go to that outcome, which makes the thing that we are actually doing less enjoyable. And dopamine is a primary component for how we experience the passage of time. This is why when we're really present with stuff, they feel like they go by really fast. And when we are always at the end trying to do math to figure out what our scorecard is going to be and what people are going (laughs) to think about it, The process is not only more difficult and less enjoyable, but it feels like it takes forever. So with children, what we can start to teach them to do is let's go see what happens rather than having to try to calculate everything that's going to go and set goals and have all these rigid lines for like this must happen. And two, can we be present in this more often and just be focused on what's required right now? And when the next thing's required, we'll get to that that process starts to pair their dopaminergic system to effort. And I can't, I mean, we don't have a podcast left enough time for me to tell you how important that is for people. If they're trying to get better and learn something, because we don't stick with things very long when the thing itself is not that enjoyable. Yeah.
2: But yeah. we can yeah. certainly invite you
1: back, Raven. Yeah. For sure. for sure. Nice, nice so, lean in Andy.
5: And I'm just trying to be <laughs> aware of our time here. So tell me when we're
1: done. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, great stuff um i i just want to be present from shot to shot that's 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 where i need to be uh andy you mentioned it earlier let's let's actually segue to a a topic because it's a topic that's near and dear live
5: Mm.
1: live golf coo resigns this past week is it the first chink in the armor mr Hydorn?
2: well i definitely think it's the first chink in the armor and I read a little bit more about it today because there was only just, just high level, you know, reference to what happened. But apparently he was in a meeting with the, uh, a tool Kosal, I think is his name, the COO, who, who was a, uh, an operator for the Tampa Bay Bucks, by the way, before, before this job. Um, but he was in a meeting with the, the minister, um, of the Saudi golf league or whatever. I don't The terminology is not right, but anyway, apparently it ended in a heated argument and, you know, he resigned. Um, So you just wonder if, if the heat is, is starting to get turned up a little bit, you know, from, from behind the scenes, because maybe they haven't really delivered as much as they promised the the people who are backing this this uh, live golf.
1: Well, Bobby, I mean, Greg's statements that he didn't expect as much pushback from the DP and the PGA Tour as he got. I mean, that doesn't probably bo- – that hasn't boded well.
3: Yeah I, yeah, I mean, well, you know, I thought it was uh, kind of interesting. I don't know this is uh, a little behind the scenes here for Golf Talk Live, but the, they announced the COO steps down. I tried to call Alan for two days in a row. I couldn't get a hold of him. Gotta make it that of what you will. I don't know yeah. if you were.
4: <laughs> he was
1: negotiating. We know was... it. <laughs> Bob, you're on. You're on to me.
3: <laughs> oh man, uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know it, it makes you wonder what's going on behind the scenes. Like Andy said, that was. Uh, you know, I think the guy before you know what's
1: scary, Bob, is it took me a minute to actually realize you were talking about me. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> You're not (laughs) present, Alan. You're not present. I wasn't present on that one. You're not
3: present. (laughs) Raymond, you need some help. We all do. (laughs) I'll I'll pass it to
0: Brendan.
4: You know, I I think when people have boatloads of money for a project or or whatever, whatever you want to call this or phrase this as, I think they think they're indestructible and it's not going to go away and and that's just not the case. You know, you talk about the not expecting the pushback. How could you not expect the pushback with the history that you have absolutely with the PGA tour? So, um, but yes, I, I do think this is just the first and, and I I'll be honest with you, I'm starting to wonder how some of the players and, and when I say players, I mean the players, the guys playing golf for the 54 holes that they play golf in their shorts on carts and a scramble. Well, no, no shotgun format. (laughs) Um, I wonder how they're feeling about some of the things you've seen little things in interviews about not knowing quite how their contracts are written with Brooks and uh, a couple guys, how that came up. And then the live, communications person that was sitting up at the table with him kind of swooped in and answered the question. I I
1: mean, I I think the whole question, even from the beginning about the whole majors and were they still going to be allowed to play in the majors, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be interesting to see. But, hey, they made their choice, right? As we said last week. Raymond, do you want to weigh in as our as our special guest on live? Do you have any uh, any thoughts on it? You
5: know, I'm not super well versed in the geopolitics of golf. Um, and I do have clients playing on every single professional tour in the world. So it's probably best that I don't uh, inject my personal opinions on it, but I can see the live and PJ tour um, relationship going in a variety of different directions okay. uh, based largely upon what leadership is in place.
1: Agreed. Exactly. Exactly. Agreed. All right, Christian 18th green final thoughts. You go first.
0: Um, uh, yeah, so first and foremost, uh, Raymond, thank you for taking the time to come on the show, uh, tonight. You're more than welcome anytime. I would love to obviously dig further into what we've talked about tonight. Um, just cause like, I, I just, I just find it so interesting and unique that I would love to, you know, hopefully one day, you know, if we ever get to meet in person, have a, have a more in-depth conversation, um, just about everything that we talked about tonight. Um, so thank you for, for coming on. Um, and second to that. So obviously guys continue to please follow us on, on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, you know, we have a lot of great stuff planned here and in, in 2023 coming up for you guys. So, uh, continue to please follow us on this journey. And, um, that's, that's my final thought. That's my, that's my closing statement.
1: Raymond, would you like to chime in and please let everyone know how, uh, where they can find your book?
5: Sure. You can find my book. It's available for pre-order right now. If you go to Amazon and type in Golf Beneath the Surface, you can get it. It will be uh, ready to in physical form uh, in early May. Uh, you can catch me on sparingly on the Twitter machine uh, at at BTS underscore mindset. Um, and I will just echo saying thanks very much for having me, guys. It's always uh, good to talk about people who are interested in getting into something um, in more depth. Depth than just kind of pithy catchphrases and stuff, which is uh, you know it's catnip for me. So I appreciate we, it. We
1: will we will put the the Amazon link up on our social for as well. Uh, Andy, what you got? Well, I just want to
2: make this real simple. Thank you, Raymond, for coming on. Um, look forward to doing this again. Um, it's people like you that make our show so much more interesting for our listeners. So thank you, um, and want to wish everybody Merry Christmas. And or happy holidays to everybody out there,
3: Bobby. Yeah, Raymond. Thanks so much for being. I think uh, we have found a a really good one in you to come back. You're like playing one of those golf courses. You finish playing, you go, damn, I want to play that again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it brings me to mind that uh, about twenty some years ago, I really started getting into more in the sort of the fitness nutrition side, probably a little due to my wife. Um, and in golf, you have fourteen clubs in the bag. And I was saying for the last couple of decades, your body's your 15th club. But I'm really refining that to say it's really your mind as well, not body and mind. Um, And my only closing thought was probably going to be the most pointed language I've used on this show. But it sucks that Roger Maltby and Gary Koch are no longer on the telecast. That was really, God, I'm going to miss those guys. I just think, I don't know what they're thinking about at NBC, but, um, you know, kudos to roger and and gary for decades of such really spectacular work really yeah man just the number of calls that those two have been on
5: over the years go down in the pantheon of uh of golf is i mean it's they've had an impressive run as come tears long after long careers of golf as well
4: mr elliot yeah bob bobby kind of stole that from me and we've seen a couple others go this year i mean even Feldo grew on me over the years too. And we we don't have him anymore in the booth. So, Um, but Raymond, thank you. Thank you very much because this is a topic, you know, I can teach kids the golf swing and how to prepare and play on the golf course, but this is one part of the game that I have a really tough time uh, working with kids. So I appreciate your insight tonight. A lot of good nuggets there that I can pass on to the kids and we'll definitely ask you to come back because I know that there's a boatload of more information that can help any golfer for sure. And last thing is I hope everybody has a great holiday season. Um, Are we recording next week? We are. Good. We can talk more about the holidays next week too.
1: And my, my, uh, my final thoughts are one shameless plug, little linksters golf outing. If yes. you're in the Orlando area, yes, I plugged it. Brendan, you asked me to do it. I made sure to put it up there. You're in the you. Orlando, If you're in the Orlando area, the end of January, you're going to see all of us because we'll be there. Please sign up. It'll be a great time for great support. And lastly, as everyone's already said, Raymond, thank you. And also, holidays. Uh, enjoy the time, folks, because these are the moments that you'll remember in life especially when people are, are, no longer with you. So that's all I got to say, Christian, you're not hitting it long and straight because it beats you hitting it short and crooked. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Yeah.
5: Thanks for having me guys.
4: You only have one opportunity to sell your golf property. Shouldn't you partner with an expert that offers you 30 plus years of golf industry experience combined with the reach of a global leader in real estate? Collier's International Golf Brokerage and Advisory Services understands your unique business needs. Whether it is brokerage, management, and consulting, be reassured that the market leader in the business of golf is providing you the real answers and practical solutions you deserve. Contact Golf Talk Live co-host and Collier's Golf Advisory Services member, Alan Depew today at 717-554-8519. That's 717-554-8519.